said last week, Trey did a great job uh, last time. Trey, and ministry, ministry service last week was lights out. It was so good. Um, and Trey said this is the last one of these, what it means to be Christian. And he, he told somebody, it was kind of funny, I guess I'm so predictable, he knows that he goes, Dad said it was going to be the last one, but I know he has at least one more. So <laughs> you're right, Trey. I do have one more, and maybe even more than that. Um, because this is an important series, what it means to be Christian. Because I think we've, we've learned a lot of things about being uh, good church members. We've learned a lot of doctrine. We've learned a lot of things that people have said over the years. But to rediscover what Jesus said it meant to be Christian has been revealing, I think, to a lot of people. And before we get into this, and I haven't taken the offering, and I know that, so don't anybody yell it out to me, um, we're going to have a testimony uh, from our very own Courtney Stump. So, Courtney, and Richard, stand up. Richard's her husband, stand up there. You, some of you may not know Richard. Courtney, okay. All right. Come on up here and share your testimony. And the reason I'm not taking the offering yet is because this is kind of a tithing testimony, but it's also a testimony of, of her journey with the, the Lord, so... And if you know Courtney, you know she wouldn't be up here if God didn't make her get up here. So <laughs> listen with all your heart. So God, I just pray over Courtney now, and I just pray, Lord, that your words would just come through her, uh, that your spirit would come through her, that the spirit of love and grace would come through her. Uh, I pray for confidence over her, God, and that she would uh, not be nervous at, at all. Uh, so God, just be with her now in Jesus' name. Amen. Here you go, Court. There's only like 20 it's on. Can you? Hello? Okay. There's only like 20 of you guys here, and I'm still super nervous. I can't imagine the second service. Okay. Um, this church started when I was 13 years old, so I've done most of my growing up in this place. I grew up in a family that always tithed. It was instilled in me at a young age to tithe the first 10%, no matter what. So when I got my first job in high school... I immediately started tithing. I never thought twice about it. When I got married, I was a stay-at-home wife. My husband did not grow up in a family that tithed, so it was an adjustment for both of us. I took care of the finances, so I always just wrote the check. He didn't agree or disagree with it unless we were short, and he would ask that I skip that month. I didn't exactly agree, but with me not contributing financially, I did what he asked and I knew that he didn't have the same up upbringing or conviction about it as I did, so I tried to be understanding. After a month, went to a few months, and then to years, we just didn't even think about it anymore. I always had it in the back of my mind, but we had so many other things going on in our life that I never really brought it up. Our marriage began to fall apart, but I was great at putting on a face in public and letting everyone know that we were fine. Now, I in no way am blaming our lack of tithing on our marriage falling apart. I'm just trying to follow a timeline. For the last year or two of our marriage, I was very unhappy, sad, and lived only for my two kids. I poured myself into doing things up here at the church. I wanted to hang out with anyone and everyone I could just so I didn't have to be at home. <laughs> I ended up allowing myself to become very vulnerable and started a relationship outside of my marriage. It was the hardest thing I had ever had to do, telling my husband what I had done. But only a few hours after enduring that conversation, 
The details of everything I had done was all over social media. I was absolutely mortified, humiliated, sad, and mad. But at the same time, I knew I deserved it. I had not only destroyed my children's lives, I disappointed my parents, I disappointed my friends, and I disappointed this church family. I never wanted to show my face in this place again. How could I go back to a place where I grew up and face the many sets of parents I have here, knowing that I had disappointed them all? I was always the good girl. I followed the rules. I wanted to please everyone. I did not want to face everybody here. But Daryl, Catherine, and my parents would not let me run away. I had to face my church family. And boy, let me tell you, I have never had more hugs, more I love yous, and more acceptance than I did the first time I walked into this building, knowing that everyone knew every single dirty detail of what I had done. My marriage ended in December of 2015, and I found myself as a single mom with no work experience and no college. I applied to every place I could possibly think of and wasn't getting any calls back. One day, I had a friend who worked at a doctor's office let me know that they were hiring for front desk people to check patients in and out. I knew it wouldn't pay much, but I was desperate. So I went in for an interview and was hired on the spot. This was the first blessing of many. I started this new journey of working, being a single mom, going through a divorce, and living with my parents again. When I got my first check, I argued back and forth with myself on whether to tithe or not. Not only was I super broke and needing as much as I could to provide for my little family, I was also allowing Satan to lie to me and tell me that after everything I had done, God didn't want my money, that I was such a screw-up and failure that God had no use for my money, that if I wouldn't have gotten a divorce, I wouldn't be working and therefore wouldn't be making a paycheck because I would still be a stay-at-home mom. But I gave anyways because I was raised to do so, and I knew that I would rather try to give and fail than to not give and fail. After about a month of working, saving, and a lot of help, I was able to get a two-bedroom apartment for my kids and myself. I can't tell you the feeling of accomplishment that washed over me knowing that I was providing for my kids and myself. I was receiving a lot of help from outside sources as well. I received kitchen dishes, furniture, towels, money, etc., I would constantly ask God, why? Why are people helping me after everything I've done? But God was always so quick to stop or to remind me that he never gives up on his children. He never stops loving them no matter what they've done. I was reminded of how my parents loved me, embraced me, forgave me, and assured me that they would do whatever it took to help me get on my feet. And that God's love for us is so much more than what our earthly parents can offer. Day after day, I was reminded of his love and his grace. Daryl has preached on grace for years, but until you need it and until it is shown to you in such a deep way, it's hard to comprehend exactly what it means. During all this time, I was still dating the man that I had the affair with. I had many, many, many people tell me to walk away. He wasn't good. He would just leave. He just wanted a fling. But I felt something very different. Richard was always so quick to send money pray with me, and offered to help in any way I needed. We both felt so terrible for what we had done and wanted to do our best to make it up to the people around us. He ended up moving here the following year. 
The first time he stepped into this place, we were both so worried about how he would be received. It was very hard for so many people, but he was accepted and loved. We both felt overwhelmed and shocked to be loved by the most important people in my life after all the mistakes we had made. He moved here after working in juvenile probation in Detroit for 10 plus years, and he was a youth pastor before that. So when he moved, he didn't know where he would be able to find a job. Thankfully, God knew. Richard was hired as a juvenile supervision officer. He worked nights, but it was a job, so we were very grateful. We both were blessed with jobs that allowed provision. After a year of working at my job, I was offered a promotion to be in charge of three different doctor's clinic schedules. I was terrified but honored to accept the position. After being at his job for about a year, Richard was also offered a promotion to be a supervisor. He still worked nights, but it was more money and more responsibility. He had worked in Detroit for over 10 years doing the same thing and hadn't been promoted to that high of a position. Once again, God was blowing our socks off. Richard and I got married in April of 2017. We both knew that although we hadn't started our relationship the right way, God was blessing us anyways, and we were very ready to start our life together. A little after a year into our marriage, God blessed Richard with yet another promotion. This time, it was for an office daytime position. Neither one of us ever thought this would be a possibility for us. We were continuing to be blessed beyond our imagination. All this time, we were both very faithful to tithe and gave God all the glory when new things came our way. But we were trying to sell his house in Michigan and buy a home here. So we were paying for a mortgage there and rent here in Amarillo. It was very tight, but each month everything got paid. I have to admit, though, I was beginning to get discouraged and again listened to Satan lie to me and tell me that this was not happening for us because of what we had done. <laughs> Y'all, Satan's an idiot, and he should know that I'll eventually pull myself out of that. I know that the king of the world died for every bad thing I would ever do. Why would he do that and then give up on me now? It's not going to happen. We waited for what seemed like an eternity for us to be able to move into a home of our own. We had a few things fall through, and every time we would get discouraged, I would cry, but then we would move on and look for the next opportunity. Finally, his house sold, and we were able to look for a home here. I feel like God always works in threes. We had one house fall through, then we put in an offer on a home we loved, and that fell through too. God kept closing doors because he had something so much better waiting for us. In March of this year, we were able to buy our very own home. It's a home that we shouldn't be able to be living in. God has shown us over and over and over again that his desire is to bless his children. In September of this year, I received yet another promotion at my job. I have no college degree, and I'm doing something that would easily go to someone who does. All this time, Richard and I have been faithful to tithe. It means so much more to me now than it ever has before. I don't do it out of habit. I do it as an act of obedience and as a thank you to a father who continually blesses me more than I deserve. After every mistake we've made, he still blesses us. That's why I just want to challenge you today. If you feel like the mistakes you've made are too big and you're listening to the same lie that I did, that God doesn't want money from someone who screwed up so bad, kick that lie straight back to hell where it came from. 
You are a child of the king, and he doesn't care what you've done. He wants to bless you more than you'll ever realize. And I want to thank this family. You guys have embraced me, my husband, and our family so much over the last few years, and I'll never be able to thank you enough. This is the greatest church on earth, and we are all so blessed to be a part of it. So if you're taking the offering, come on up. Let's take the offering now. Um, I wanted to wait because I wanted to give you an opportunity to hear that great testimony. And uh, if you haven't trusted God in this area of tithing, just encourage you to do that today. So, God, I just pray over this offering now. And I ask, Lord, that you would just receive it in the spirit that it's given. May we give it in, in uh, cheerfulness, in faith. And like Courtney said, with a big old thank you for uh, blessing us even when we don't deserve it. And uh, we love you, Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Courtney. What does it mean to be Christian? Well, we're going to talk about that today. <laughs> I, like this, I like this testimony, not just because it's a tithing testimony, even though that's really important. <laughs> I love it because of that. I love this testimony because... And yet you have to understand that she's been in this church since she was 13. She's been in my life since she was five. And uh, her parents and her. And I've known her. She's like a niece to me. Uh, very close to this family. And, um, but I like this testimony because it's details about Christians, a Christian that burns their life to the ground. You know, a lot of testimonies that we hear are people that get up and say, you know, I was like this, and then I came to Jesus, and now I'm like this. And that's a great testimony, because what that shows is that Jesus can change a life. But there are a lot of testimonies where I came to Jesus, and then I burned my life to the ground. Now what do I do? I mean, a lot of people think that once you do something like that, that God almost turns his back on you, and uh, definitely the church turns their back on you. In fact, a lot of people, when you, when you fail miserably like, you know, you can, we can all do, um, it's, it's not even comfortable to go to church anymore. People want you to even change churches because they really don't want to deal with being around that. They have to face their own feelings, their own consequences. But Jesus, even when we step in to something that's so out of character for us, like what Courtney did, and this was very out of character for her. Not just in her personhood, but very out of character for her born-again character. And I, like I say, I've known her a long, long time. And when she went through what she went through, it was just like so incongruent with who she was. But Jesus, he knows before we do anything what we're going to do. But Jesus, he knows before any day you wake up and maybe you didn't know you would do meth. Maybe you didn't know that you would have an affair. Maybe you didn't know that you would have this kind of relationship that you know is very inappropriate. Maybe you didn't know, but God always knew. And if he chose you, he chose you knowing everything you would do. And he promised to never leave you or forsake you. So what happens after a Christian burns their life to the ground. And that's what I'm going to talk about because it's very much a part of what it means to be Christian. 
The early church understood this. Some people think it's so odd to have these testimonies that are so raw and so transparent, and we have a lot of them. And sometimes they're uncomfortable. You hear them, and you're like, oh, I didn't want you to talk about that. That's a little more than we wanted to know, you know. But this transparency, this honesty, this real testimony is so important because of what the first century church said. Trey said it last week really well. He said, you know, when the church was legitimized 300 years after its you know, conception, it, after it was legitimized, we ended up having nothing but divisions from then on, 33,000 Christian denominations. But before that, when the church was just in its infancy, when everybody wasn't clamoring to be right and to have the right theology, when everybody was just loving one another and remembering what Jesus said, they held on to things like this, like what James, the brother of Jesus, said in his, his book. He said it was so important as Christians, what it means to be Christian, that you don't hide from what you've done, that you confess your sins to each other. And which is almost foreign to us. Because in the Christian church, it's like hide your sins from one another so that no one really knows your stuff. Because if they know your stuff, they're going to judge you and not like you and not want you in their church. And they certainly aren't going to let you do anything in church. But the early church was not like that at all. They said, confess your sins to one another. Why? So that you can pray for each other. You know, hearing a testimony that's raw, that's real, someone bearing their soul and telling you the good, the bad, the ugly, isn't a it's not an invitation for judgment. It's an invitation for pray. Pray. Because I want to be healed. I don't ever want this to happen again. I don't ever want to go through this pain again. It means to be Christian is that we, we can hear, not only hear other stories, we embrace other stories, and we can love them and pray for them, and they can find healing because our prayers are powerful and effective because we're righteous all for the same reason. Not because you're so good, but because Jesus made you good. They understood this. The early church understood about honesty. They understood about failure, even after coming to Christ. You know, the Beatitudes in, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, people read these and, and they just think there's some random blessings, but there's nothing random about Jesus' words. Jesus is actually showing us a path to get back into the kingdom blessings. When you fail, here's a path to get back into kingdom blessings. And that's what the Beatitudes are. It's a progression. Blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those that mourn, they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness, they're going to be filled. Blessed are the merciful, they're going to obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, they're going to see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, they're going to be called the sons of God. And blessed are those that are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is a progression. This is a way that Jesus tells us we come back into good graces 
with him. Not that you lose your grace or that you lose your salvation, but many times we lose the joy of our salvation. Sometimes we even lose the knowledge of our salvation. When we go through something that's so incongruent with our Christian life and we step into sin that is so vile and so offensive to other people and we've damaged our testimony, what we think beyond repair, God says there's always a way back. And here's the way back. Because he knows we're all going to fail. He knew it before he saved you that you would have days that you failed. And he starts off by saying, blessed are those that are poor in spirit. Blessed are those that know they have no moral high ground to stand on. There's a blessing that waits for us. In fact, he says those are the ones that are going to enter into the kingdom of God. It's whenever you come face to face with the fact that what you've done is wrong. This is the opposite of what a lot of Christians do when they fail and people confront them with their sin. They say, well, it wasn't really my fault. I was in a bad marriage, you know, this and that and another. And there is a whole backstory to what Courtney went through. I know it because I knew her so well. I'm her pastor. But there's no reason to go there. I love what she said. She said, you know, what I did was horrible and it was wrong. And then whenever all this happened to me, I knew I deserved it. That's it. Blessed are those that are poor in spirit. They know they're completely morally bankrupt. They can't go to God with any of their good deeds. They can't go to God and say, it's not my fault. They just go and say, God, forgive me. I don't have any moral high ground to stand on. I'm poor in spirit. And they knew the consequences of what they had done. She said, you know, it hurt my children's lives. It disappointed my parents. It disappointed my friends. It disappointed my church family. I never wanted to show myself in that place again. She mourned. That's what happens when you sin and you know you've sinned and you own it. You mourn because you burned it to the ground. You know, a lot of people, they get to this place, they say, well, I'm not as bad as oh so-and-so. I'm not as bad as that person. At least I didn't do that. That's not mournful. God wants us to be honest. He wants us to be transparent. He wants us to dare to bear our soul and to know that we have no moral high ground, to know that what we've done has serious consequence and it has hurt a lot of people. A lot of people. And we own it. And then you're meek. You know, you're meek. You're humble. I remember many times having this conversation with Courtney. She wanted to leave. Who wouldn't? And I guarantee you when Richard moved here, I, would, I can't imagine what Richard went through walking in this place. I know what it feels like to come into a body of believers and everybody know your stuff and everyone knows what a failure you've been. Everybody. But they took the difficult road. You know why? Because they were walking in meekness. Do you know how many Christians just absolutely say, I just want to go somewhere where nobody knows my stuff? I'm just going to go somewhere where nobody knows my stuff. Why? So I can hide and everybody thinks I'm good. Everybody thinks we've been married for 20 years. I know what that feels like. The only problem is it's not the way back to God. To be Christian means you're honest. You're transparent. 
You don't trade eternal reward for temporal comfort because you're Christian and you know this isn't all there is. And then what happens? A beautiful thing happens. You repent. Repentance is a gift. It's not pulling up your bootstraps and trying to be better. That doesn't get you anywhere. People say, well, you better repent before you come to God. You can't repent before you come to God. You have to experience God's grace. You show me one place, one place where God, Jesus interacted with a human being and he made them repent before he extended grace. Show me one. Because there's not one. He extended grace every time. Because he knew the encounter with God's grace and his goodness was what would bring someone to repentance. Like it says in Romans 2, verse 4. It's a gift. I loved what they said. They hungered and they thirsted after righteousness. We both felt so terrible for what we had done. But we wanted to do our best to make it up to the people around us. That's a direct quote from her testimony. She didn't learn this and try to go down a blueprint. This was something the Spirit of God worked in and through her. She began to hunger. They both did. We want to make it up. We want to do it right. We're not these people. When you find your path back to God, you get to a place where you're willing to give it up and come back to God. You hunger and thirst for doing it the right way. They got married. And although they didn't start well, they wanted it to be a blessing to themselves, to everyone around. They wanted to walk in the path of righteousness. And they wanted to do it right here, where they fell, where everybody knew their stuff. And what happens as a result of that? What she said, Daryl had been preaching about grace for years, but until you need it and people give it to you, you don't really understand it. And suddenly, you're merciful. Why? Because you understand what it means to need mercy. And when you receive mercy, it's so easy to give mercy. Because you know. You know what it feels like. So when people fail around you, you're not standing there judging people. You're not looking down your nose. You're not telling them, I told you so. You're not telling them the consequences of their sin. What you're doing is you're having mercy on them. You're loving them. And it makes you pure in your heart. Why? How does it bring purity? There's just such a freedom for people to know all your junk and to love you anyway. That, I can't tell you how good that feels. To have no pretense that you're not seeing Daryl different on Sunday morning than you are Daryl any other time. You know me. It gives you a purity in your heart because you don't have to hide you don't have to clean up anything. You just have to be who you are. Because everybody knows who you are. Wouldn't that be beautiful? Wouldn't that be neat if that was really what it meant to be Christian? And you're a peacemaker. Because you're not seeking to vindicate yourself. You're not seeking to bring vengeance. You're not trying to get even with everybody that hurt your feelings. You're not trying to get even with everybody that's judged you. you you're a peacemaker. You just want there to be peace. It does something into your heart. It gives you a, a, a different mindset. You're not trying to straighten everybody out. You're not too worried about what anybody else does because you know, you know the consequences and you know that 
God has this way of just getting people where they need to be. You're at peace. And you would think the final thing in that, because you've walked this road, and because everything has gone the way God says it's going to go, and you're right back into his blessing, that everything is going to be, you're going to be praised. Isn't that the P that should be here? But it says, no, you're going to be persecuted for righteousness' sake. Because the truth is, sometimes when you hang your dirty laundry out on the line, people take that as a license. They think, if you said it, we can talk about it, and we can judge it. Just because you know something doesn't give you liberty to talk about it, and it certainly doesn't give you liberty to judge it. But that's what happened. And Jesus knew it. He said, you're going to go down this road, and it is a tough road, but you'll be persecuted. But blessed are you, because you're right back into my presence. Persecution really never stops. He outlined this path to get back. And you know what? The path... Get back to God after you've failed has nothing to do with self-punishment. Has nothing to do with self-condemnation. And it has nothing to do with trying harder. I love this from Richard Rohr. Because so many people don't understand grace. So many, even after all these years, we just don't get grace. Richard Rohr says, I bet 85% of Christians still think they're going to come to God by doing what's right. It's not the way. But most of us think like that because most of us don't understand grace. There's no evidence that this even works. There's no evidence in the Bible that anyone came to God and got right with God by keeping the law. Not one person has ever become righteous by keeping the rules. Ever. There's no evidence. But we act like that's the goal. There's no evidence it works. In fact, quite the contrary. This preoccupation with being right and doing it right, it usually creates, and he says, forgive me for being so blunt, anal retentive retentive personalities. They're usually judgmental, preoccupied with themselves, and very often not in love with God, not in love with life, not in love with their fellow humans. I, I have found this to be absolutely true. People that think they have a high moral ground that they can judge others from, this high moral ground that they can tell other people how they should be living, they're not even fun to be around. It doesn't make you Christian, it just makes you self-righteous. But most people don't know what it means to walk in grace. Because most people are talking about, you just need to press in, brother. Press in. What, What does that even mean? Press in. And what I'll tell you what it means. Try harder. Pray more. Fast more. Try hard. And do anything. The only thing that does anything is to walk in humility and brokenness before the Lord and let him lift you up. He said the humble will be lifted up. The prideful will be brought down. It's easy. Just come to Jesus. Choose Jesus and not pride. Because most people, they have a Moses view of sin. The reason 85% of Christians act that way is because most of them are looking through the lens of Moses' law. When they see sin, they see big sin, they see little sin, they see real bad sin, they see a whole lot of sins. They see all these different ones. Oh, that's a bad sin. Oh, you, you're really going to hell, brother. You know, that's extra hell for you. 
But Jesus' view is sin is sin. Do you realize that Jesus didn't die for the sins of the world? He died for the sin of the world. You know what that difference is? Because he doesn't look at all those different variants. You know, he, he just looks at sin. And he took it. And so when we see sin, we shouldn't see big, little, many, less. We should just know that every one of us all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. What difference does it make whether it's a green, blue, red, or yellow sin? You know, you know? oh, well, I only do the yellow stuff. I'm in a little bit better shape than you green, green people. I mean, it's really, it's so ridiculous. But that's, we, it's, it, you see, knowing what it means to be Christian, we should, we should approach life and sin and the reality of life the way Jesus did. Sin is a reality. It's ridiculous to argue with reality. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. We sin all the time. But Jesus took care of the sin of the world. I mean, sin can be painful. And I'll, and I'll admit, I love Courtney like a niece. And when she went through this, it hurt me. You know, it hurt me personally. And I was worried about the damage it would do to the church. I was worried about the fallout in the church. I'm a pastor of this church. Courtney's been here since she's a little girl, and everybody knows her. Everybody knew her husband. Everybody knew all these players. But what was I going to do with what I knew? What was I going to do? You see, it all had to come down to how I see things. How, how, I, how I could see things. Because the dirty laundry is inevitable. But how I view that uh, dirty laundry, how I see people's brokenness, how I do it, it has everything to do with me. Because it's my viewpoint, my paradigm, my perspective that determines on how I treat people and how you treat people. You don't know that. It's all up to you. The problem's not the dirty laundry. Everybody's got dirty laundry. The problem is what your perception is of that dirty laundry. How do you see it? Because it's out there. This story about this young couple moved in this new house, this new neighborhood, and they'd get up every morning and they'd have breakfast, and they were in this new neighborhood, and the wife would go over to the window every morning while she was doing the dishes, and she'd look out the window, and here'd be the neighbor hanging up her laundry on the line. And the woman would see the laundry, and she'd go, she's hanging up dirty laundry on the line. She didn't even know how to wash clothes. She's hanging up dirty laundry on the line. Her husband would just sit there and look at her, whatever. Next morning, she'd get up. They'd do breakfast. She'd be over there doing dishes. She'd look out. Neighbors hanging up laundry. And she goes, she's still hanging up dirty laundry on the line. This went on for like a month. Wife, I can't believe she didn't know how to wash clothes. She just hangs up dirty laundry every day. And then one day, after about a month, they, they got up. They ate breakfast. And she went over and she looked out. And the lady was hanging up her laundry. And she goes, well, hallelujah. She finally figured out how to wash clothes. I wonder if she started using soap. You know, she, somebody taught her how to wash clothes. And her husband said, no, I just got up early and washed the windows. <laughs> the, the, the thing is, our perception, if you're looking through the law of Moses, you're going to have a distorted view of anyone that does anything wrong. Just like this woman did. She thought it was the laundry, and all along it was her perception. It was her paradigm. It was what she's seeing. Many of you look through the lens of Moses' law, and you think you're living in grace, and you're not. 
The problem is when you look through the lens of Moses' law at other people, you're looking through the lens of Moses' law at yourself. That's why so many of you hate yourself. That's why many, so many of you condemn yourself. That's why many of you look in the mirror and you're just disgusted at your failures. And you do it over and over because you've never understood the grace of the Lord. You're still trying to live under Mosaic law. And Jesus came to fulfill it. We must get to the place of grace. You know, there's no way in the world that I can judge Richard and Courtney. <laughs> you know, my lens that I look through, I, I would be the biggest hypocrite on earth because I've done the same things. You know, years ago, I broke her heart doing the same thing. I hurt her. I fell. I had public failure. I still have the letter that she wrote me forgiving me. She forgave me. She said she loved me. She understood and she forgave me. She was just a kid. If anybody needs forgiveness in this whole equation, forgive me for being a bad example. But it's all in our paradigm. We can choose to take some moral high ground. It's been years and years and years since I did what I did. But you know what? It would be ridiculous and hypocritical for me to think that I haven't done the same things. That's what Paul said in Romans 2. He said, you have no excuse. You who pass judgment on somebody else, you don't have any excuse. For whatever point you judge the other, you're condemning yourself. Because you know very well you do the same things. People say, well, I've, I've never done that. You know, that's the reason Jesus said what he said in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, well, I've never committed adultery. He said, well, have you ever looked at a person and lusted in your heart? Well, yeah, but that's not the same thing. Yeah, he just sees sin like, he doesn't see it like this. He sees it like this. That's why he said that. You've done the same thing. So how dare you think that you can get on some moral high ground and judge anybody for any of it? We can't. We can't. That's why we're called to love one another. That's why we're called to pray for one another. You know, I love Courtney and Richard. I, you know, I didn't know about Richard, then I got to know him, and I love him dearly. And my job in their life now is for them to know me and to love me and for me to love them and trust them. And I, I'll do everything in my power for them to never go through this again because of the pain that I know it causes. And you know what? They don't want to go through it. I don't want any of you to go through it. But if you do, I hope you find grace and forgiveness and love and not condemnation. I hope you find Christians and not just people that are self-righteous. I mean, sin's painful. And what do you do with the pain? You forgive it. You do exactly what God did with the pain that you caused him. He forgave you, and now you forgive others. That's right. That's how it works. He forgave you, you forgive others. You know, Courtney forgave me. 
I forgive her. We both have peace. We both love one another. We don't talk about it. We don't bring it up. We just have a good relationship, and we know that we're honest with one another. That's the way it should be with everybody in this room. That's why we should confess our sins to one another, not so that we can judge one another or you know, pity one another, but so that we can pray for one another and love one another and know that by the grace of God, you could be doing anything. And we're all in this together. God's more concerned about our unity than he is about how pure everybody thinks you are. You know, the, the deal, the problem with hurt and pain and being offended is that if you hang on to it, then think about this. If you're hurt or you have pain from what someone else has done to you or done around you, or if you've been offended because of what someone else has done, and you hang on to it, who's got the hurt and the pain and the offense? Well, you do. You've hung on to it. You've got it. So today, I'm just saying, let go of it. You don't need it. I know that people hurt other people. I know that sometimes people's choices are painful. I know that. Sin is painful. But there's no reason for you to hang on to it. God didn't hang on to your hurt. He didn't hang on to the pain you caused him. He's let it go. So people say, so anything goes. People don't just do anything. There's no consequences. There's tons of consequences. Sin has tons of consequences. I just want to say this. You know, people think big sin deserves big punishment. And they want to make sure you're punished. Well, somebody did take big punishment for our big sin. And I don't want to be standing there and telling him that what he did on that day when he carried my cross, when he got hung up on that cross for me, I don't ever want to be to the point where I say, well, what you did didn't just, it just wasn't enough. So we had to bring some additional punishment. All the punishment you took is not enough. I don't want to be the one to tell Jesus that. Because he took it all. He said it's finished. So why in the world would we try to punish anyone, even ourselves, for the failures that we've had? He took it. And to be Christian means we believe he took it. And he's lifted it off of us. And no matter what we do or how bad it is to the rest of the world, we can look in the mirror and say, I'm beloved. I'm God's chosen child. He loves me unconditionally. I don't care what you did. He took it all. So I want to pray this morning for some of you. Because some of you are still hurt by someone else's sin. You're still hurt by what someone else has done to you around you and it's hard to let it go it's hard to let it go when people sin against you or do things that hurt your heart I know that but I'm just going to ask you to be bold enough if, you, if you've been hurt or if you're hanging on to hurt or pain or if you're offended at someone because of their sin or because you just can't get past it I'm just going to ask you to pray. stand up I just want to pray for you just stand up just everywhere because I want to pray that you're free Because this is a heart issue. It's a heart issue. It's a faith issue.
Adultery hurts. Leaves scars. But Jesus took all of that pain with him. All of it. So that we wouldn't have to bear it. And so God, today I pray for those that are standing up all over this room. And I ask, Lord, that your spirit would come and heal them. Just like Trey preached last week about the comforter. God, we're asking that he come in and make things right. Bring comfort instead of pain. Bring peace instead of strife. That the offenses would fall to the ground, God. And people's hearts would be healed. That the memories would be erased, God. Those memories that they relive over and over and over again. And in, in their vivid imagination, the, the prison that's been built in their own mind about the things that they imagine happened. God, I pray right now that you set their mind free. Stop running these tapes in their mind, God. Let the Spirit of God go in there and just stop this playback. And that they would finally feel it fall to the ground. And they'd just say, I'm letting this go. I don't want it anymore. I don't want it. Jesus took it and I don't have to have it. And so God, I pray for freedom to be released right now into the hearts of your people, into their minds. As they look in the mirror, God, that they would see a beloved child of God. They would see someone that you care so desperately about, that you love so much. I pray also for Courtney and for Richard, God. I thank you for the boldness of this testimony, the honesty of it. And I pray, Lord, that you would just keep the enemy far from them, from their mind. Keep the attacks far from them. Bless their marriage. Bless their finances. We thank you, God, that you're so good and that you love so much. And no matter what we've done or who we are, you never give up. You never give up. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So ministers, if y'all will come up. And if you need prayer this morning, before you leave, um, come up and get prayer. We love you. We want you to be good. And um, have a good afternoon and a good day in the Lord. Amen.